following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. With Civil War Talk Radio, first at Bethel, farthest at Gettysburg and Chickamauga, last at Appomattox. That's North Carolina's proud recital of its record as a member of the Confederacy. Even more telling, North Carolina has long claimed the gory distinction of having suffered more soldiers killed in the war than any other Confederate state. Exactly how many were killed, no one has ever known until now. Historian Joshua Howard of the North Carolina Department of Cultural Resources has been counting them carefully, one by one, and the results may not be what partisans of the old North State were looking for. We'll talk about numbers and history with Josh Howard today on Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. know that digestive problems, ADHD, and chronic pain can be treated naturally? In fact, most health problems can be treated using integrative and alternative medicine. Find out about cancer prevention and managing diabetes. Learn how to use common herbs and spices to treat a variety of conditions. For the sake of your good health, tune in to Natural Solutions with your host, Dr. Sean Palmer. Broadcasting live every Wednesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio Network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich coming to you this Friday the 13th of May in 2011 from the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, here in the third floor of the uh, never quite beautiful and now somewhat decrepit Brewster Building, home of the History Department, but not speaking for the department or the university or the UNC system, the state of North Carolina, or any other entity but myself. And I know that my fellow public employee we'll be talking with today will also speak only for himself and not for uh, for the state or anybody else, because that's how we do it legally here on Civil War Talk Radio. Well, the uh, 
the semester has come to an end here at East Carolina. The students have taken their final exams. They have uh, I, I taught a Civil War course this semester and had some students writing uh, essays that were uh, near publishable quality, uh, just some outstanding students, and then others who, after 14 weeks of reading and talking and thinking, at least in theory, about the Civil War, um, responded on the final exam with some of the same uh, cliches and myths that, that they had come in with in spite of having been presented ample evidence that that's not how it really was, but, but that's how that's how Daddy explained it and that's how it still is in their minds. And uh, there's only so much one can do, apparently. But uh, it's gratifying to see the students who did make enormous uh, intellectual progress, not necessarily agreeing with the interpretations I offered, but uh, presenting their own and arguing them in a uh, coherent and, and, and responsible fashion based on evidence. Um, and that outweighs the discouragement of those who, who just came back and recited the same old thing. Uh, but that's how that's how teaching is. It's always always interesting and fun. We hope we uh, present some things that are of interest to uh, those of you listening today. That uh, uh, on the show generally, we hope we present new ideas or at least ideas that, that uh, some listeners haven't heard before, and that will give you something to think about. We will have some excellent shows coming up in the weeks ahead. Next week, uh, Dan Crofts will be talking about the Diary of a Public Man, the uh, famous 1879 uh, publication of a an anonymous diary kept by an important person in Washington, D.C. during the secession winter, just bef uh, leading up to Lincoln's inauguration, the tense months before uh, tense months before. Fort Sumter when people wondered what uh, was going to happen. Would there be a war? Uh, your homework, uh, listeners, before next week is to read the Diary of a Public Man. I'm, I'm sure it's online somewhere. Uh, if if not, go out and buy uh, Dan Croft's book. Uh, uh, you'll, you'll be glad you did. It has an appendix that includes the entire diary. It was uh, serialized, it originally appeared as a serialized newspaper account and, and isn't uh, all that long. Uh, you can read it conveniently, but that'll get you up to speed. And even if you don't have time to read it for next week, you'll enjoy hearing uh, as uh, Professor Crofts tries to unravel the mystery of who was the public man. And that'll be an interesting show. Uh, then we've got uh, no show for Memorial Day weekend, uh, a chance for us all to remember those who gave their lives possibly by watching a car race. I'm not sure how it ties in, but that's what many people do, uh, or otherwise spend a long Memorial Day weekend. And then we will have three more shows before the end of the season. Uh, Gregory Irwin will be with us to talk about uh, uh, George Armstrong Custer's Civil War record and other interesting Civil War tales that Professor Irwin has uh, come up with in a, a long career. Uh, Robert Hunt on June 10th. A subject near and dear to my heart that he's written on the Army of the Cumberland, uh, uh, originally the Army of the Ohio, and you'll hear from, from him about that. And uh, the last show of the season, the 17th, will be James Martin. He's written about children in the Civil War. Now he's writing about veterans going to the other end of the, the age spectrum, and he'll have a lot of interesting things to share with us. You can keep up with all this at the 
Civil War talk radio companion website, uh, www.impedimentsofwar.org. Uh, Mark Gaffney does an outstanding job keeping that up. Uh, he also keeps a Facebook page for, uh, uh, for that website and the show, and you can follow events there, so feel free to contribute there. And speaking of contributions, you're always welcome to send some money to the show. At uh, If you go to impedimentsofwar.org, you can click on the PayPal button there and send money to civilwartr at aol.com. And that gets used partly to maintain the website and partly to buy books for the reading that I then talk about with you here on the show. Uh, You've heard it too many times, I hate to repeat it, but it's true that uh, the state of North Carolina is going through tough economic times, as as we all are everywhere, I know that. Uh, But our current legislature is not... uh, Well, let me give an example. The state senator we elected, uh, a big part of his campaign involved him making fun of a museum of... Uh, it was founded on, originally on a collection of teapots, and he thought that was uh, an example of absurdity in spending public funds on teapots um, because uh, really any material culture of the past is worthless and, and we should just discard it and not certainly spend any public dollars on it when there are other things we could do with that money, uh, like, I don't know, keep it. So uh, so we've got a legislature not – well, I shouldn't go too far because our guest today is, is like myself, is – dependent on our, for them, for our employment on them. But funding is tough, and uh, our library here at East Carolina is not what it used to be. And uh, we're fighting an ever-losing uh, battle to, to maintain a, a, a good collection of Civil War monographs and monographs in every topic. And the days when I could count on finding every good new book on the shelves within a reasonable time are gone. And I actually do uh, have to spend the Civil War book fund on books occasionally, not just on whiskey and uh, escort services as in the past. No, that's not true. But uh, uh, I've always spent it on books. Strike that. Uh, Also, uh, a reminder legally, it's not tax deductible. It really is just a contribution to keep the show strong. So uh, if you donate, uh, you get my thanks. Uh, you get a copy of All for the Regiment uh, if you send $20 this way, or Did Lincoln Own Slaves if you want to do that that book. Uh, happy to send that to you. And uh, whether you send money or not, please continue to send in suggestions for guests on the show. Some very good ones have come in in the last uh, week or two, and I've been trying to contact some of those people that you've uh, reminded me of who haven't been on the show yet. Uh, so those are always welcome. Please feel free to Go ahead and send those in. Well, today's guest is uh, one who, uh, you know, you you don't notice the things right before your eyes the way uh, New Yorkers don't go to uh, the Statue of Liberty. Uh, But when he appeared in an article in the Wall Street Journal, it struck me, yes, uh, uh, this would be an interesting topic. Uh, Josh Howard is a research historian with the Office of Archives and History, part of North Carolina's Department of Cultural Resources, uh, a uh, graduate of Appalachian State University, and uh, a master's degree holder from right here in Greenville from East Carolina University. Uh, He's also 
co-authored two books on uh, the Revolutionary War, uh, one on Guilford Courthouse and the other on uh, Battle of Cowpens, uh, both uh, co-authored with faculty here from East Carolina. And uh, he is currently working on various projects that we'll talk about today for uh, the Office of Archives and History. Uh, the most notable one, and the one that got him in the Wall Street Journal, is, is the one mentioned in the introduction, Counting, counting the Dead uh, from North Carolina. Josh, are you there? <laughs> yes, sir, I am. <laughs> Thanks uh, for having me. Well, thank you for, for being on the show. Um, uh, we'll, we'll start with a hearty R. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, talk about uh, being a pirate. You, you got your MA here uh, a few years ago now? I did. I finished my MA in 2004 and uh, went on to work for the state. And uh, it, it was a great experience. I was in the Maritime History Program. And uh, just a wonderful, wonderful experience in a great school. Can't say enough good about the History Department. So. Well, that, that's uh, much appreciated, especially since we're not grading you anymore. You, you're free to say anything. So <laughs> exactly. But it, even better to, to my ears is, is when you said you got a job, and uh, you know, it, it, in the history market today, that's not easy to do. And it's a tribute to your uh, ability uh, that, that you're able to do that. But but it's always good to see one of our graduates doing well. So uh, what, what did they hire you to do originally at uh, History? Uh, originally, I was pretty much hired as a Revolutionary War and Colonial Period uh, expert and also a military history expert um, as a research historian with the research branch of the Office of Archives and History. And uh, so with the sesquicentennial coming around, um, I pretty much got thrown to the wolves into the Civil War, um, which has always been an interest of mine, but I am a Revolutionary War historian. So um, it was uh, a whole different ball game, to say the least. So when so somebody just came to you one day and said, "Look, Susquehannock's here. Um, let's 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 count all the bodies, Josh. Uh, you're up." <laughs> well, we have a. It's a much larger um, project that the death study is actually a part of, um, and and that project is called the North Carolina Civil War Atlas. And one of my colleagues, Mark Moore, who is an expert uh, cartographer and military map maker, he's worked uh, with Mark Bradley on several of Mark's books as well as his own books about Bennettville and Fort Fisher. Um, Mark would, had, had come up with the idea of doing a map-driven project showing the maps of all the campaigns and engagements that took place in North Carolina. And we fleshed it out by adding statistical data and demographic data. And so I'm actually doing a study of enlistment by month uh, through each year through North Carolina's units, and then also deaths. And initially, when we did the deaths, or made the decision to do deaths, we didn't look at the the, the 40,000 figure and go, hey, let's see if we can challenge that. We simply went into doing the project and quickly realized this isn't adding up. And so we had to backpedal a little bit and look at the origin of that original figure and figure out where it came from how it came to be known, uh, and how it came to be accepted. And as you know, within North Carolina history, uh, there are a lot of myths, <laughs> a lot of uh, legends that have, um, they're hard to break, and they're hard to uh, to convince people, you know, it, this actually isn't the way this happened. Um, and this well, appears to be one of them. So. Let me ask you about that number, because that fascinates me. When uh uh, before I came to East Carolina, I was at the Lincoln Museum in Indiana. My predecessor there, Mark Neely, had written about uh, arrests, uh, uh, arbitrary arrests in the North. 
And he came across the, the figure you see quoted everywhere, 13,000 arbitrary arrests carried out by the Lincoln administration, and spent a long time trying to track that number down right. because there was no support for it. It just, it, once it appears, it keeps getting quoted. Exactly. The internet, exactly, it goes, gets worse. So is, is the 40 or 41,000 North Carolina deaths the same kind of number? It just... Well, we're, yeah, it, where it originated was um, in 1866, uh, actually in 1865, uh, Congress, uh, when, when the war was concluded, asked for, we want a, a report of the number of men, both North and South, who died in the conflict. We need to know. Uh, that Herculean task went to Major General, went to Brevet Major General, um, James B. Fry, who was the Provost Marshal General of the entire United States Army. And what he and his clerks did was go through all of the captured military correspondence, which later became the records of the rebellion, uh, looking for casualty figures. And so the 40,275 for North Carolina, as well as every single other Confederate state's long-held figure, and for a good portion of time, the federal figures came from the Fry Report, which was completed in 66. Now, that report, basically, as all congressional reports, pretty much just got chilled. <laughs> Nobody actually looked at it. Uh, until 1889, when William Fox published his book, Regimental Losses, mm-hmm. he published that, those statistics in his book, citing them directly to Fry. And that was the first time those figures ever became mass you know, to the public masses uh, in a in a uh, easily readable um, uh, format, and it's no wonder that three years later in 1892 is the first time we can document anyone ever saying North Carolina lost 40,000 men, and that North Carolina lost the most men. And it's simply because someone in this situation, namely Stephen B. Weeks, North Carolina historian at large, uh, obviously had a copy of Fox and Fox was citing Fry. <laughs> um, and so that's where that figure originated. Um, the, the main problem is is that North Carolina can show that our estimates by Fry are wrong. South Carolina can show it. Virginia can show it. The three states who've really been working on this, we all can show the figures are wrong. So, um, and it's no wonder, because after-action reports are almost always inaccurate. Men are listed as having been killed who were captured. Men are listed as having been killed who were wounded, and vice versa. Um, and so you really have to get back to the original documents of those units uh, to track down to see, uh, well, really, who was killed. Um, so what do you mean by original documents of a unit? Uh, muster rolls, typically. Um, muster rolls and hospital counts. Um, each a muster roll was... Uh, put together on a monthly basis for a unit typically or on a two to three month basis and it would record every man who was present in the company, uh, ten companies to a regiment and it would also denote if that individual had been killed in action or died of disease or if they were in the hospital, if they had deserted, it would tell you the disposition of the individual. Um, If you had all of those then you'd be able to do this. Right. Josh, let's take a short break. Uh, We're just getting warmed up here. We're going to find out more about how to track down the casualties of the Civil War with our guest, Joshua Howard. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Now you don't have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop. Take World Talk Radio on the go and listen anywhere. Get our mobile app for iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android at the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. 
If you're looking for answers and solutions, you don't have to look to expensive treatments, consultations, and methods. All you have to do is listen to your connections. Every week, the Dr. Melanie Show will teach you how to do just that. Dr. Melanie Barton will share her gifts and talents and teach you to do the same. And in doing so, find the solutions to the issues in your life that you truly need. You'll learn about holistic and practical health in six key areas. Discover the Dr. Melanie Show, Thursdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. If you are dealing with chronic illness or a disability, at times you can feel lost with nowhere to turn. It doesn't have to be this way at all. You can become an active participant with your doctor in the healing process. Tune in to A Healthy Way to Be Sick with host Mark Lerner. Mark has developed techniques to make your healing a partnership. Each weekly show will cover four main topics and how you can take steps and hear from experts that know the value of patient participation. Tune in every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern, 11 a.m. Pacific on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Josh Howard from the Office of Archives and History for the state of North Carolina. been talking about his research into the number of war dead from the state of North Carolina, long set at uh, just over 40,000, uh, an iconic number that represents the largest number of men killed from any state in the Confederacy. Uh, as we discussed in the first segment, that number doesn't really have much historical foundation, came from uh, a, a hastily compiled post-war report and got quoted in Fox's uh, regimental losses, uh, uh, and uh, many people are familiar with that book. Uh, once once you've got that uh, in your mind, uh, it sticks and it gets quoted and quoted elsewhere, and uh, pretty soon it's, it's everybody's number. But uh, but Josh, you were saying that the only way to find out the real numbers to go back to uh, muster rolls and, and actually look at the numbers uh, of individuals uh, killed in a given battle and, and add these all together. Right. My first thought uh, is, do those records survive? Uh, right. How how can we do that? Well, it, there's a lot of um, concern about that, and and it's well founded in some cases in the sense that there are some units which have terrible record loss. Um, however, it's a myth that that is across the board. Almost all the North Carolina regiments, at least up until December of 1864, the records are very solid and very complete. Uh, and they can be supplemented not only in muster rolls, but supplemented by federal records of capture, prisoner of war records, um, you know, men who died in, in POW camps, men who died in, uh, who were wounded and then subsequently died in federal field hospitals. Um, and then also there's a, a milieu of other materials out there that we can use, correspondence, um, post-war data. And then what we do um, as part of our parameters, the way this works, um, we, first off, what's a North Carolinian? We define a North Carolinian as a resident of the state in 1861 um, who served. Now, for example, 12,000 men served in Indiana and Illinois regiments who were born in North Carolina, but I would never claim them as North Carolinians um, as far as this, you know, as the parameters of this study go. Uh, and then you look at all the North Carolina regiments. We also look at um, 
North Carolina sent several companies which enlisted in Virginia regiments and in South Carolina and Georgia and Tennessee units, but they were entirely compiled of residents of this state who simply went across the border, most of them were from border counties, and enlisted. We're counting them as well. Uh, in the reverse of that, we have Virginians who came down and did the same thing in North Carolina's units. I'm giving those figures back to the, the individuals in Virginia studying, and same with Georgia and Tennessee. Um, basically just trying to get a better analysis of what we got here. But the records are, are there. Now, if we have an individual who, no further records, December 1864, we look for them on the 1870 census and 1880 census nationally. We look for them in Confederate pension records, Confederate widows' pension records, and also we will go to the extent, if we have to, to look in marriage bonds in the 18, like 1865-1870 to see if that individual appears. Um, almost always they do, um, but it does allow us to have this potential, you know, number of fig number of guys who they may have died. They simply don't appear in the post-war period. They may have lost their lives in the war, but they easily, just as easily, could have died in 1867 in a farming accident. Mm -hmm. um, so, so there is some give, you know, leeway there. But we think that by at least offering that assessment, we're kind of filling that gap, so to speak. Um, you know, if a guy disappears in December '64 and he doesn't show up at Greensboro and he doesn't show up at Appomattox, um, where did he end up at? And uh, in almost all these cases, it most likely appears he either deserted or was discharged um, prior to the so, so most of the time you, you do find this person, but if, the, if they don't show up and they don't show up, then, then you've got I, the dog. Yeah, they, become, they fall into the category we have of missing. Um, mm -hmm. And right now we have about 3,000 of those guys who are, you know, I, I've done about 99.9% .9 of the North Carolina Confederate units now, including Confederate Navy and Marine Corps personnel. Um, from North Carolina, and they can be identified as such. And we're looking at around a 3,000 uh, figure for guys who are MIAs that they they simply disappear, and we can't track them. And it's not an it's not an you know it, it's not an end all be all. I mean, John Smith is a little hard to track. Right. You know, so there's about no means is this ever going to be 100% accurate, and we anyone who would claim that is crazy. So. That, that's one thing that historians have to live with is a certain amount of ambiguity. Absolutely. But what about um, – these are limited to Confederates. Are they, no, we're actually doing the Union soldiers from North Carolina as well. We just oh, okay. haven't – that's the next phase that I'm getting ready to move into. Um, we're doing not only the U.S. Colored Troop regiments that were raised in North Carolina, also the four um, North Carolina white Union volunteer regiments, and then in addition – um, the galvanized Yankees, which were Confederate POWs who switched sides um, with the offer to be sent typically out west um, with one of six U.S. volunteer regiments um, where they wouldn't have to fight their former messmates mm -hmm. and they'd kind of be out of the war. Well, we're also studying the North Carolinians amongst those to see about, you know, not only how many of them died, but it's also very interesting to see. Can we find a correlation between were these men slave owners or non-slave owners? You know, what, what really influenced their decision to get out of prison? Was it, was it simply, I want to get out of prison and survive and not go back to the meat grinder through exchange in Virginia in 64, so I go out west? Or did they have other reasons for, for having joined the Federal Army? So. Hmm. No, this um, answers a, a question that... that uh, 
that certainly I, I had uh, an initial question to something like this is, is well, who really cares? Sure. You know, if you're within 10,000, I mean, a lot of men were killed. We know that. Sure. Um, but but you're pointing out all kinds of really important and interesting things we can find out about uh, uh, from this sort of study. Exactly. Let me ask uh, a specific. Well, let me, let me ask the sixty-four dollar question. What what's your total number you're you're heading toward? Is it bigger okay. or smaller than the original? It's it's smaller. Um, right now, I can confirm. 100% confirm uh, 32,177 Confederate deaths from North Carolina. Uh, if you add to that the 3,000 missing, and granted, you know, I don't, you can't simply add it to it. You have to put the asterisk in to say these guys may not have died in the war. Mm -hmm. um, and then you accept the fact that there's still some who will just simply never find. Um, I think my best estimate would be 35,000 Confederate dead, which is not far off of the 40,275. But as you as you pointed out, I mean, what we're doing with these stats is not simply to get that figure. We have it broken down by regiment. We have it broken down by year. We have it broken down by type of death. You know, um, did they die of disease? Did they were they killed in battle? Did they die as a prisoner of war? Did they die as an accident? Did they get struck by lightning? Um, and then we have it broken down by county, so that we can. The end result will be you'll be able to look at an 1861 map of North Carolina and see how many men enlisted from each county and how many men died from each county. And also, theoretically, how many men were of military age in that county. And so that gives us a really, gives historians a really neat resource there to make larger discussions about, well, did counties that had higher slave ownership amongst their people send more men to fight and die? Yeah, how does this all pan out? Did, did the coast actually, you know, send more men than the Piedmont or the or the Western Front? Uh, you know, uh, there's just a lot we can do with the data once we get it complete. Uh, this, this really is a, a fascinating uh, window that we're opening. I was just reading uh, Edwin Ayer's uh, work that he did from the Valley of the Shadow Project. Uh, where they looked at the two communities in the Shenandoah Valley, and right. we're doing the same kind of micro history, counting people and uh, following people through four years, and, and to be able to say that you know Stanton sent seventy-five percent of its military-aged people, and Franklin, Pennsylvania, sent forty percent or twenty-five percent. Uh, now we can know that. I mean, right. the the technology is there to do this. It's really an amazing thing. Absolutely. I mean, it's not to it's not to bash Fry or bash any of the other you know statisticians who've done this before. I mean, they were working with limited resources of, of their own time. And we we're lucky, and we have access to all these digital resources that are open up to us now, uh, that have given us access to records and resources we never had before. Um, so it's a great opportunity with the sesquicentennial to do this, and it provides us a, several things. First, you know, just because we didn't lose 40,000 and we may not have lo lost the most men because Virginia right now, they have more than we do, and they're still counting. Um, and it's very likely Virginia lost more men than we did, and, and it really shouldn't come as a surprise because they had a higher population of white men of fighting age in 1860 than we did, a much larger population than we did. Um, so it shouldn't come as a shock, but it also shouldn't be seen as an attack on the honor of these men, I mean, or, or the level of sacrifice. I mean, when you do the math and you you look at the, the 1860 white population between the ages of 15 and 50, male population, 25% of those men died in the American Civil War from North Carolina. If you apply that same percentage to the same demographic statistic of today's population of North Carolina, white males 15 to 50, if you kill off 25% of those men, that would mean in the next four years, 450,000 white North Carolina men 
who are alive today would not be alive four years from now. If 450,000 North Carolinians and Tar Heels died tomorrow, it would be a big deal. It, it, would, it would be a big deal. <laughs> so, I mean, in context, the, 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 uh, the casualties in more recent wars compared to those of the Civil War, uh, just, just how horrible the Civil War actually was. Now, are you... Any public history, uh, especially anything that challenges past assumptions, runs into issues. Sure. Um, are, are you braced for the Sons of Confederate Veterans to say, uh, it says here 40,000, and, and right. don't go telling me it's 35,000? Well, you know, we have had some backlash from certain groups, but I will say that one of our greatest helpers um, is an individual named Chuck Purser, who is an SCV camp member in a camp here in Garner, North Carolina. And he has done his own, he's doing his own study parallel to ours, and we're comparing and contrasting as we go. And they have been a tremendous help to us, um, offering advice and support. And, you know, it's really neat when we compare our figures and we're only off by 15 guys, that always makes me feel good because, you know, they're doing some great work too. Um, but there has been some pushback. Um, I don't think a lot of people want to accept the fact that the union soldiers from North Carolina, be they black or white, should be counted as Tar Heels. And hmm. for me personally, they are just as much of a North Carolinian as anybody else. <laughs> um, and I think that they deserve to be studied in, in a, as a part of this because they were North Carolinians too. And if those who lost their lives especially need to be recognized as North Carolinians as we go into the sesquicentennial. We have a wonderful opportunity there and we should take advantage of it. Let me ask a, a technical question. Uh, this comes up when people, anytime you're talking about casualties, uh, counting casualties, we, we talked about the difficulty of records, and you point out the, the records really survived better than, than people commonly think. Uh, but there's always the ambiguity of, of what exactly does it mean to be killed in the war. Um, right. if someone you know, is, is killed on the battlefield, that's obvious. If they die like Stonewall Jackson uh, of complications within a week or two uh, right. that seems to be uh, killed in, in the war. Uh, but if they get a you know, piece of lead in in their body and they never fully recover and die 10 years later, right. uh, are the, do you, how, how are you defining that? I have a separate count that is not a part of the 1861 to 65 Confederate count. So I'll have a post-war, you know, just basically assessment there. But the thing is, is those are simply you find a story from an ancestor or a descendant who says, yeah, he died from this wound in 1868. They make for a much better um, sidebar in the book that will eventually come from this than they do making a statistical analysis of those individuals because it's almost impossible. Whereas with the military record, we have a set ability of materials to work with. We don't have that for these post-war guys. Now, having said that, one of the US, well, two of the USCT regiments from North Carolina remained in service in 1866, and then one remained in service in 1867. I'm still counting if they died in '66 as a death within 1866, mm -hmm. simply because I don't think it's fair to those men who were still under arms and still serving as part of the Reconstruction forces, uh, at least with these two units, to um, to say, well, they died after the war. And, I mean, they were still under arms. They were still in service. And uh, so in those, I'm making exceptions. Um, and also, this is clearly an, an entirely military enlisted personnel. 
we have been at, you know, well, what about the nurses? What about the civilians? What about the body servants? What about the laborers? And each time we find those people's deaths, we record them in a separate database. Uh, civilians who died as prisoners of war in the north. Um, there's a bunch of Quakers who were working at the salt works in North Carolina and the coast and got captured, and a bunch of them died at Point Lookout. Well, they deserve to be counted. But we're keeping them in a separate a separate database because, you know, technically speaking, they were not members of the Confederate States military. And it would work the same way for Union um, Quartermaster Department employees who were, you know, hired. They weren't enlisted soldiers, uh, per se. Um, so it, it comes down uh, to a lot of semantics. But I think that's important to maintain strict categories so that we don't run the risk of making some historical untruths. So. When you mentioning the the United States colored troops serving after the war, but counting them as, as war casualties, uh, brings up the fact that you have a lot of casualties without fighting. Um, I assume you're recording uh, the causes of death. Yes. Uh, uh, what, what's the major cause, or what are you finding there? Absolute major cause, number one, is disease, regardless of if it was simply disease while in service or disease as a prisoner of war. Um, and... It, Almost across the board, the highest number of deaths by disease is caused by typhoid fever or chronic diarrhea. Hmm. That is, those are the two main killers. There's also camp fever, which we really don't I mean. Was it yellow fever? What was it, actually? Um, but those are the main killers. But it runs the gamut. Um, uh, it takes the romance out of war. Yeah, absolutely takes the romance out of war. We also have some very amazing ones. We have a fellow who died of a spider bite. We have several men who got struck by lightning. There is a gentleman who, and this is the exact quote from the original document, he was mistaken for a bear while brushing his teeth in a creek and was then shot and killed. And mm. as I like to joke, I think that probably had more to do with somebody was messing with someone's sister and they found out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> None of that adds up. So. Uh, that's, that's, I don't know, the bears and their dental hygiene. Is exactly. So... Um, but it it does absolutely run the gamut on cause of death. So. Now, when you're talking about the relative number of losses between North Carolina and Virginia, um, I know Virginians are doing their own count, uh, and I want to ask you about that. Sure. Let's take another short break, come back, find out more about the, uh, the effort to count the Civil War dead here in the 21st century. Our guest is Josh Howard from the North Carolina Department of Cultural Resources. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. Holistic healing has been around for over 5,000 years. The basic concept is that of treating the whole person and encouraging a healthy way of living in harmony with nature and the core self. Every week, take some time out for Holistic Healing Moment with host Elizabeth Amy. What is out there and how does it help on the transformational path of healing body, mind, and spirit? No matter where you are on your path, there will be a topic that will speak just to you. Tune in to Holistic Healing Moment, Mondays at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. What's missing in your life? Do you feel like you've lost your identity? Are you trying to cope with a loss in your life? 
Are you trying so hard to be a people pleaser? Stop! Invest some time in Dr. Marla Sloan's program, Mind Over Matters. This program will help you find the answers to these questions and more. Dr. Marla's passion is to help people to be the best they can be. And this program does just that. Tune in to Mind Over Matters with Dr. Marla every Thursday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking today with Josh Howard. He's a historian with the Office of Archives and History and the Department of Cultural Resources in the state of North Carolina. We've been talking about his project uh, counting the Civil War dead of North Carolina, um, originally Confederate, but soon to include Union soldiers as well uh, from the Tar Heel State, uh, looking at uh, how they died, uh, looking at who they were, and, and challenging the iconic number of uh, some 40,000, uh, which at one time was considered the largest loss of any Confederate state. Uh, in the state of Virginia, there's also uh, a sesquicentennial project to count the number lost there. And Josh, you said they've already counted more than uh, the total that you're coming up with. Uh, it does seem logical that Virginia would have the most casualties, being the largest state and the one where all the battles uh, seemingly took place in the east, or, or many of them, certainly. Right. Uh, uh, you, both you and the uh, uh, researcher in Virginia were... Uh, portrayed an article in the Wall Street Journal last month uh, about this, or two months ago, I guess, about this uh, uh, issue. And just from reading it, I got the sense that the the guy in Virginia was a little more uh, rivalry-oriented than you. Is is that fair to say? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I don't want to speak for Edwin. He's a really great guy, and we we work together a lot providing each other. I give him Virginians I've found, and he's given me North Carolinians, and he's just a great guy and a great researcher. But, you know, I think Virginia has sat there for so long being told that they lost more than, or lost less than us, and and there might be a little bit of angst there that they want to prove it. Um, as I think I said in the piece, you know, my, my personal opinion is I, I, I'm, I'm a native North Carolinian. My people served from North Carolina as Confederate soldiers, but I don't have a, a vested interest in this most lost thing. What I'm interested in is most accurate and getting it as accurate as possible because I think we owe that to these people. Um, to, to tell the truth and to have it correct um, as best we can, and, and as, as historians, as a prof- you know, as a trained historian from a wonderful institution, <laughs> uh, would be us. I, I was trained right, and I was yeah. trained to do it right and do it as best as I could. And I really think that that's what we're trying to do here as historians. Um, and there may be a little bit more rivalry coming from the northern uh, state than us, but you know, I would leave that to them to to say. So, well, that that's. Uh, you know that article pointed out also that there is value in doing this. Uh, quoted uh, Drew Gilpin Faust uh, up at Harvard, who's written about you know a fine book, this Republic of Suffering, about the losses in the war. A lot of people are thinking about this. There have been several books on losses in the Civil War recently, and a lot of books on memory. Uh, In one, is this a way actually of memorializing uh, these men? In your view? Yeah, I see it in a certain sense. It is. Uh, At least it's bringing back the very fact that a discussion of 
numbers of dead could make the front page of the Wall Street Journal says something. It says something about how we still strive to, to understand these people. And if we can get their experience and their sacrifice out there to bring it back to the, the American public's forefront during the sesquicentennial, I think that's important. And it is memorializing them, Confederate or Union, um, black or white. Getting them back out there to say, you know, these people went through one of the worst experiences in this nation's history, and I think we're better for it. And um, we need to honor their sacrifice, and we need to look at what happened to them and do it right. And uh, it, if Virginia ends up having more men than we do, so be it. I mean, <laughs> we still lost a tremendous amount of people, um, and, and it's an opportunity to, to look back on them. So. I, I guess that, that I, I would certainly agree with that. I, I was thinking about this and, and uh, Nathan Forrest's uh, famous attributed quote: uh, "You know, war means fighting, and fighting means killing." Right. Uh, that this is the war ultimately is about killing other people. Now, I, I wouldn't oversimplify it. There, there is much more to war uh, other sure. than simply killing other human beings. But it is a fundamental part of war. It's part of the definition of war, and. Uh, in a way, this is important for getting back at it. Is there a danger, though, of, of, of trivializing it, uh, of making it like a, a, a sports kind oh, of Oh, sure. Thing? And that's part of the reason I haven't wanted to get into the rivalry stuff, because I think that definitely trivializes it. That trivializes the, the intense sacrifice of it. And I think there is some risk. I'm always someone who says, well, they're not just numbers, they're faces. They were human beings. And here I am doing a project that's about numbers. But having done that project and having seen these men, you gain an understanding of, I, I think, uh, gain a better understanding of who they were and what they went through when you constantly see the sacrifice. You know, here's five brothers, and four of them didn't come home. And you see the impact that this had on people's lives. And, and you see the, the African-American freedman who goes off to, to fight to free his fellow man and loses his life in a swamp in Florida. That's a story that needs to be told, and it's something that we as North Carolinians really need to to at least bring those stories to light, and I think this gives us an opportunity to do it. And, and But I do agree there is the risk of trivializing it, and, and, and I don't think that that's a route we need to go down. So. Yeah, well, I, I think uh, the way you're presenting this uh, sounds like you're, you're very keenly aware of that. How is this going to be presented? This, you mentioned the, the Civil War Atlas um, yeah, the the plan right now is for that to uh, go into publication. We're in talks with you know, University of North Carolina Press um, about producing it um, in a book format. And so there'll be large statistical analysis in the front or, or throughout it in chapters about North Carolina's role in the war and various aspects. Um, uh, everything from where were the camps of instruction to where were the railroads, how supplies, you know, the dead, the enlistments, um, Union soldiers from North Carolina, et cetera. Um, and, and Mark's maps, his campaign maps and battle maps throughout it, will be produced in a book format, hopefully. So that's the game plan as of right now. Well, that will be something very much to look forward to. Absolutely. Speaking, speaking of books, let me change gears a bit. Uh, I mentioned in the introduction you've written uh, or co-written with uh, Larry Babbitts of the, the faculty here at East Carolina uh, about Revolutionary War battles. And uh, Dr. Babbitts is trained as an archaeologist, uh, um, you in in your books have employed battlefield archaeology uh, 
Is that a subject? Have you thought of looking at a Civil War battle in that light? Or, or maybe, just, let me ask you generally, what does battlefield archaeology have the potential to tell us anything about the Civil War? Uh, yeah, absolutely it does. There's some great battlefield archaeologists doing Civil War work, like Stephen Potter up in Antietam uh, in Harpers Ferry, who's done some excellent work that's showing uh, how battles were actually fought, more than simply what we read in the in paper or we see in reenactments, and uh, by showing the archaeological record. Um, I recently helped uh, run the battlefield uh, archaeological uh, investigation of Alamance Battleground, which, granted, is not a Civil War battle, it's a Regulator War battle, but um, but we did the battlefield archaeology out there. And uh, hopefully more work such as that will go on on Civil War sites uh, within North Carolina and other southeastern states coming up through the sesquicentennial, because I think it does give us um, some interesting uh, understanding of tactics and, um, and the men themselves. And, uh, I think well, it's important. What? What kind of thing do you find out? I mean, I, I, our listeners will uh, indulge if we talk about Guilford Courthouse or Revolutionary War battle. And just, uh, to, by fired and unfired rounds, musket balls, um, you can pretty much tell the distinction between a fired round and one that was simply dropped. If you find a line of dropped musket balls in a perfect line, you typically know that's where a unit was in position. And you kind of have to do battlefield ballistics, and you can measure off the distances fired from these rounds and figure out where units were in the progression across the battlefield. Um, and, for example, at Guilford Courthouse, in one, just one example, uh, here we have these documents saying that this one American militia regiment bent back onto itself and formed uh, you know, a, a reverse L, um, a fighting L, fighting back. And so here we have the documents saying that. Then we go and do the archaeology, and sure enough, we find a line of dropped musket balls in a perfect L shape over 150-yard space. And it's in the exact spot where that unit was supposed to be. That's pretty neat. Um, and it, it, you know, you're able to confirm the documentary history with the physical history on the ground. Uh, and I, I think that's pretty amazing. So the men would, would be in the process of loading and would drop the occasional ball. If they right. stood in one place long enough, there'd be a collection of them. Right. When, you, when you're when you fumbling with your cartridge box and you're in the midst of combat and you're terrified, uh, you'll commonly see guys drop cartridges out the box as they're pulling another one out to fire. And, um, and that's typically what the situation is. Um, we found several of those at Alamance Battleground where we can now you know, pretty well show where some of Tryon's militia were actually stationed in the fight, which, uh, you know, it allows for better interpretation at the site itself. Hmm. So, and you're also uh, just doing a quick look online uh, before the show. You're involved with the 1812 Bicentennial Project. Right. We uh, are attempting to get um, some... The ball rolling on War 1812 for the Bicentennial, um, and the Bicentennial Committee here for the North Carolina Department of Cultural Resources is uh, attempting to get a conference slash symposium set up at the Beaufort Maritime Museum um, probably in June of 2012, um, and to go forward with that, basically studying North Carolina's role as small as it was in that conflict. So, uh, so the, the, the role the public historian has... Uh, has many hats to wear, I guess. That it does, sir. That it does. <laughs> so, and let me just push on that a bit uh, as well, the, the public history idea. Uh, you said this project initially uh, came to you as part of the Civil War Atlas and, and the idea of counting enlistees and then counting deaths and, and uh, you know, grows into something larger. Um, 
how, how big is the, the office you work in that you can do all these kinds of projects? How many people do we have doing this? Well, as far as the research branch itself it goes, we have my supervisor, Mike Hill, and my colleague, Ansley Wegner, myself, and Mark Moore. There are four of us. And Mark really is actually an IT uh, gentleman who works with IT, so he, he doesn't get to do as much as he'd like, I'm sure, with, uh, with what we're doing with the Atlas. But, um, but there's basically three research historians, and then there's the remaining part of the archive staff, but, but they're kind of separate than us. So, so we work on, on big projects like this. So it is a, it is a Herculean task. <laughs> there is no way around it. As a public historian, you know, going into our field, you have to be prepared for it, <laughs> um, but it's it's a passion. It's one of those things that where when somebody tells you do it for love, uh, you know, love what you do, and and that's that's really where I'm at. So that that is really the case. I tell students when they ask about graduate school uh, careers in history, I say if if I really I often tell them not to go into it because if if that's enough to get them out, then they shouldn't be there. Right. If they love it, they'll they'll ignore me and and do it anyway, and that's the people. <laughs> that we expect. Now, uh, not wanting to close on a down note, but uh, uh, the budget looks grim here for ECU for the coming year. We're doing our best to keep things uh, on an even course. Uh, I, I can't imagine the legislature is going to treat uh, treat you, you fellows much better. Uh, I think everyone is hurting uh, pretty much across the board, but we're doing the best we can and, you know, trying to close ranks and uh, and move forward and offer the state citizens the best we can. I, I suppose, in, in some ways, this having a, a project that gets national attention, uh, like the one you're doing, is is, is timely uh, for reminding uh, our, our legislative leaders that history isn't just a, uh, an isolated thing for a few pointy-headed intellectuals, but uh, the public right. really cares about this. We hope so. We hope so. It's something to get out there to say, you know, this is important, and it is something that within the the public memory of North Carolina is very, very strong. And uh, and there is history is living. I mean, it continues to move on, and and it's always changing. And we can always go back and, you know, somebody once uh, said, well, you're just a revisionist. Well, I look at all historians as revisionists. We're all simply revising what somebody else wrote. We're always <laughs> simply going back and looking at the past and uh, and and reviewing it and, and revising it to what we think is best. And um, so we're doing we're doing the best we can. That that would be curious. I, I've heard the same thing. People will will accuse someone of being a revisionist, and my thought is, what what would be the point otherwise uh, if, right. if we're not revising and looking at the past through new perspectives and with new evidence? Uh, why bother? So uh, of course we revise everything. Uh, that that's the whole goal. Exactly. Wow. But hopefully, well, like I said, we'll give uh, we'll give the state citizens something back and. And uh, and this will result in some good resources for future historians and uh, future researchers to use to uh, to learn more about the war and about the life in the 1860s in North Carolina. Well, that is the goal. Uh, there is a conference next Friday. That would be the uh, 20th of May. If any listeners download this between now and May 20th, 2011, uh, in Raleigh. Uh, is it in Raleigh? Yeah, it's, it's in Raleigh. Yeah, it's in Raleigh. History. Um, yeah, at the Museum of History. Uh, what do you know about this conference? Uh, well, I'm I'm on the committee for it. Uh, we have a number of wonderful speakers coming, including David Blight, when you know some national uh, level uh, historians coming. We have some uh, great local historians as well, and uh, multiple talks. Um, it's it, registration fee is twenty five dollars, and uh, you can find all of this material on our website. It's um, www.nccivilwar150.com. 
and you'll find the links to the conference on there. Uh, I think registration actually closes on Tuesday, so it's a short. I, I think it does. You'll have to hurry. Yeah. Um, I'm sorry to say I'm, I'll be doing the show next Friday, so I won't okay. be able to be there, uh, which I, I greatly miss. But uh, uh, I know it'll be a successful conference. Well, Josh, it has been a pleasure talking to you, and I appreciate all you're doing on behalf of not just North Carolinians, but anyone interested in the Civil War. Thank you very much. Thank you, listeners. Thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Join host Daniel Gutierrez.